Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, from VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you're in a sea of self-doubt. Today, my special guest is Sherry Reese. She is the co-owner and co-founder of Far North Spirits, a craft distillery based in Halleck, Minnesota. They produce rum, whiskey, gin, and vodka. Before moving home to Halleck, Minnesota, and starting the business in 2013 with her husband, Michael Swanson, Sherry worked in public relations for 20 years, mostly in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota, and she was a partner in her own PR firm. Far North Spirits is a 2016 Minnesota Idea winner from the Northwest Minnesota Foundation and a 2016 Minnesota Cup finalist, which is the top business plan competition in Minnesota. For more information about Sherry and Far North Spirits, visit farnorthspirits.com. It's a beautiful website, really well done. Sherry, thanks for taking the time. I'm excited that you're here and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thank you so much, John. I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So Sherry, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your current company for our listeners. The second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. And the final part is the let's get personal component where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Sherry, it's time for some questions. What do you think? Should we do it? Let's do it. (laughs) All right. Give me the basics. So Sherry, what's it like up there in Halleck, Minnesota, going from a big city to a small town like that. What has that transition been like? It's been an interesting transition in that coming home is probably the best part of this whole company venture so far. Um, They say you can never go home, and I I disagree. We grew up in Halleck, and it's a town of just 980 people, but it's home. And um, you would imagine moving from you know, the metro area of Minneapolis-St. Paul to a a little rural community six hours away um, would be an adjustment and culture shock. And it is, but in a a really good way. We were ready for it, and um, it's exactly what we were looking for. So you both, both you and Michael, your husband, you're both from Halleck. We are. Michael grew up on the farm. I grew up in town. So I'm the city girl, <laughs> and uh, it's home. That's a sensational story that happens so, that's so unusual. So tell us about 
how all of this began. How did you come up with the idea? You were in PR, is that right? And then Michael was in some sales and pharmaceutical and some other corporate jobs, is that right? How did how did that foster an idea like Far North Spirits? Well, I think we um, both were in these sort of corporate rat race jobs that were um, we did we're doing really well financially, but there was part of our soul that was just never filled. And you know, they say you can take the the boy or the girl out of the farm, but you can't take it, the farm out of them. Well, that kind of I think is what happened to us. We we loved the city until we didn't, and we really wanted to move home and do something tangible and meaningful that fed our soul, but also to make something real. Our corporate jobs were, um, you know, we, we would spend our days doing strategic messaging or writing marketing plans and making PowerPoints. And at the end of the day, we kind of felt a little empty. There wasn't a lot, there wasn't something we could hold in our hands. And we wanted to make something real and really to live more simply. What part of your return to Halleck was wanting to manufacture and create and make something physical like that versus wanting to just simply get out of the rat race and move to back to the home? I think it was kind of a 50-50 thing. Um, moving home was maybe the driver, but it all started with this conversation about the farm. I mean, we literally were, we had a mentor that told us having this conversation about how do we live more simply and how do we get off this merry-go-round? And our mentor said, if you see an exit ramp, take that sucker. Yeah. Although we didn't use the word sucker, <laughs> he used something a little more colorful. <laughs> but I will tell you, we were driving home one day and we, we saw the exit ramp you take off of Interstate 29 near Canada to get off, um, to come on the little rural roads back to Halleck. And we thought, you know, wait a minute, what are we doing? We have a farm. And Michael's dad is, you know, at the time he was in his late 60s and getting ready to retire, although he will never fully retire. He's one of those very stoic Scandinavian farmers. And we thought, you know, you can make finished product from grain. And so in terms of business, you know, where do we go with the business and what do we do? It started with this idea of value added agricultural products. And so how do we make something, a finished product that we can sell directly to consumers from grain grown on the farm? Um, and so the farm was the driver. I, I think there was this very, um, you know, earnest <laughs> intent of moving home, which was the wanderlust, which was the thing that drew us back. But the, the idea was always to make a finished product from grain. And we were big foodies in the Twin Cities. We spent a lot of time eating out at restaurants. That was our form of entertainment. And I would say that the, the food culture of the Twin Cities was inspiring to us. And um, we were kind of on the early end of craft distilling because we started talking about rye and rye grain and rye whiskey growing up this close to Canada rye whiskey was always a thin a thing you know that's just what people drank 
And so we thought, well, what if we used the farm as driver for building a craft distillery? And we had no experience in distilling. We didn't even brew beer at home, but we were foodies. And so it, it started with this idea of, of farm to table local ingredients and making something with our hands. And to actually go out and do that and to sort of take that huge step to moving up north and actually investing in this type of business is truly, to me, very astonishing. Do you know Joe Heron, Kirian Folliard, Bob Safford? Do you know those guys that have also started beverage companies here in the Twin Cities? We know Kieran a little bit. We've talked to him and he's been tremendous in terms of, I mean, he is such a marketing genius. So Kieran has, has really been one of those sort of inspirational forces behind us as well. So Sherry, as you heard, I provided an introduction about you and Far North Spirits in the beginning of the podcast episode here. But in your own words, describe Far North Spirits, describe the company its products, and what makes them so unique? Well, Farnerth Spirits is a farm distillery, and that means we are located on the farm where we actually grow the grains that we use in our field-to-glass spirits, um, which is a rarity in the industry and, and just kind of a rarity overall. We uh, manufacture the spirits right in the distillery there, which is located in what was a wheat field up until 2013. Right now we're distributed in nine states, so kind of the, the states that border Minnesota as well as the coasts and um, Georgia is our southern outpost. And what makes us unique really is, is the fact that we both grow the grains. My husband actually plants the seeds and does the crop rotation and the whole thing, as well as distilling from start to finish. We pride ourselves on that level of transparency and authenticity. Yeah, that is so amazing. So Michael, your husband, he did grow up on the farm, correct? He has farm experience since he was young. He's driven a tractor since he was 11. Yeah, wow. he grew up right there on the farm. So how many employees do you have now? We have um, three employees, including myself, my husband, and our assistant distiller. And we also have a, a brand ambassador, brand rep down in Minneapolis who um, works for us in, in the event tasting capacity. How many retailers or how many doors do you serve out there currently? In the state of Minnesota, obviously, that's our biggest market. We're probably in close to 500 locations. That's both retail stores and bars and restaurants. Yes. Um, and then if you take into account the other states we're in, collectively, probably about another 500 locations. So nationwide, we're in 1,000 locations. We're also in kind of an, a unique um, the Viking cruise ships, the Cinderella and uh, Morella in the Baltic Sea carry our rum because they stop in the Oland Islands. So that's our one international um, location. It's right outside of Finland. Oh, that's fun. So going into starting the business early on, what was your confidence level that there would be demand for this product, this type of product. It seems to me, and I don't know your whole story here, it seems that you sort of went all into this 
Was there any testing involved? Was there any research with consumers? How did, how did you, what was your confidence level early on? I would say our confidence level was high off the charts. We were, we were all in. That's exactly correct. Um, we, we knew we were on the early end of craft distilling for Minnesota um, because there was, at the time, only one craft distillery in the whole state. But we knew that the rest of the country had been doing it for quite a while. And we knew, we did a lot of research actually. My husband, um, the, the, the year before we started, he basically did nothing but research and write the business plan. And we visited a lot of distilleries, both in the States um, and some rum distilleries in the Virgin Islands. So we knew that um, this movement had started in, um, I mean, it started in the late, late 80s in California and places like wine country. Um, but it really had had started kind of, I'd say, switched into high gear in probably about 2010, 2011. Sherry, most entrepreneurs go into business with a set of assumptions. And many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they expected, thereby making them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Far North's uniqueness, did your original assumption about the product's uniqueness prove motivating to consumers, or did you discover a slightly different selling proposition after being in business for a while? That's a great question. Um, I would say this. It's, it, we did discover that we had to switch things up a bit, and I, I would sum it up by it's hard to be a prophet in your own land. Um, we didn't expect to be in places like New York and California as early as we were, but our farm distillery nature, the aspect of how we make things, um, was so compelling to the folks on the coast and not as compelling here in Minnesota initially. We are, we're, we're seeing that it's taken a longer time to get a foothold in our home state um, and that the farm aspect of growing our grains isn't, ne isn't nearly as sexy to people in Minnesota initially. Um, I think it's getting there, but it's really sexy to people on the coast. And so um, what we're trying to do, I think, is kind of change that dynamic a bit and um, help people in Minnesota consider farmed grains the same way that people on the coast consider estate-grown grapes, because it really is the same. So we, we refer to our, our spirits as estate-grown. Um, and I think part of that is this sort of, you know, Minnesota humble, that Scandinavian, you know, don't get too big for your britches kind of thing. Um, and also that just grains grown here are um, really world-class, and I don't necessarily think people have always thought of them that way. Tell me how. So here we are in the tell me how segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Sherry, let's talk about raising capital. Did you have to raise capital for Far North Spirits? We did. We raised capital by uh, actually approaching a local bank and leveraging our farmland to get a business loan. 
Terrific. So you you didn't even go the equity route. You just went the debt route, which is to have that a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It it farmland up here is pretty valuable and. Um, it's a small community, and so while we had to demonstrate a you know a sound business plan, um, there's a lot of uh, hometown team pride <laughs> that goes on here, and I think you know people in this area embrace this idea um, and love the fact that we were starting a business based on the farm. Yeah, so you did not get any outside equity capital from investors. It was just purely from financing in terms of a debt method. It was to start. We have since gone out and gotten some mostly local neighbor farmers to invest for additional capital. After that first year, uh, year and a half in business, we decided it was time to bring in some extra resources. And so we've approached and have mostly neighboring farmers who, again, are really interested in supporting a, a local business. How formal was your approaching those other farmers? Um, it was pretty informal. I mean, we did the friends and family thing, you know, where we we literally invited people out to the distillery. We have a cocktail room, and we sat around the the farm table there and um, talked about what we were looking to do and presented kind of where we where we've been, where we want to go, and what we think the future looks like. And um, that's how we got people interested. How big of a decision was it to talk to other investors? Was that a big decision for you? I know that holds a lot of people back. It was a big decision. Um, we, you know, initially it just felt like let's do this on our own and let's keep it all all to ourselves. And that that just became too much. And so getting the investors to support it um, we started by, we thankfully have a, a cousin who started a brewery in Chicago, and he did, he spent quite a significant amount of time looking for um, investors. And so he shared with us his whole strategy. And that, I, I'd say, is like, that's the best thing you can do if you, if you know somebody who's done it, um, that will give you not just the, you know, Cliff Notes version, but all the down and dirty, how do you, how do you do this? I think that's the best way to go about it. So you can ask all the simple questions that you might think are stupid questions, but you should ask them anyway. Did it go smoothly, the capital raise for the equity investment? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think we wanted it to be done quickly and it took about a year and we were thinking we could get it done in about three, four months. And uh, it took longer, and so allowing that extra time was important. What were what was some of the pushback you received? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Pushback. What did we? I, I don't know that we re received any pushback per se. I would. It was more a matter of people getting their own ducks in a row and deciding how they were going to invest, whether it was you know liquidating something or that kind of thing. Um, it was more their own personal decisions rather than pushback on needing more information from us. Yeah, it's sort of hard to get people off center, you know, when you approach people to raise capital. People aren't necessarily against it, but they're not necessarily for it. And sometimes it takes them a while, I think, to become for it to the extent that they'll actually write you a check, don't you think? 
Yeah, and I think it has to do with their own experiences. And, and up here, there have been <clears throat> a couple of different ventures that started that asked for investors, and they they weren't successful. And so there's some processing that that has not a lot to do with us, but more to do with the experiences that people have either heard or are aware of. Um, so you do have to reassure them, but it may not be directly connected to what you're offering. Right. Let's switch gears a little bit. Most of the time in this podcast, the people I talk to find a an outside manufacturing partner. But from the very beginning, it sounds like your idea was to manufacture the product yourself. Did you ever consider a manufacturing partner at any stage? Never, because it was all about making it ourselves and farming it ourselves. That mm. was that was the genesis of the whole concept. So you, according to your website, looking at the pictures, you seem to have really an impressive facility and operation there starting from scratch. How did you learn so quickly how to manufacture a product like that, set up the operations, etc.? Um, well, I th would say two things. My husband is a farm kid, and he's not afraid of taking things apart and putting them back together. Yeah. <laughs> and we hired a consultant. So <clears throat> there's a whiskey consultant that we worked with to get the building built, to buy the equipment, to size it. You can't go online and find you know, a blueprint for building a distillery or even a blueprint for how to run a still. Um, so we, uh, in, we, um, we worked with a, a consultant who worked for Maker's Mark for many years. And so he was able to help us, you know, think, you know, ask us basic questions like how much whiskey do you want to make a year? How many people are going to be running the still? Um, really basic questions, <clears throat> excuse me, that helped us, um, get the whole thing. How challenging started. was that process? It was really challenging. Um, it, you know, it was still early in the craft distilling community here in Minnesota, and so there were a lot of people that didn't really know how to do this, but we'd all talk to each other. Um, I mean, I would say that was one thing that, that made it a little bit easier is there were, when we were starting up, we found a group of other um craft distillers that were starting up in the state and we are are still to this day we have a guild and we work together and we talk to each other and I, I think that's absolutely essential to even you know just as an emotional support you can get together with people and ask dumb questions and and you're all kind of you know in the same boat yeah and describe a problem or two that occurred in the manufacturing learning and process and how you overcame them oh well um <laughs> there were there were many i would say that's uh, by the way <laughs> your comment of there were many is always the answer that my <laughs> guests give i mean they, they they don't even know where to start frankly yeah yeah well failure is the best way to learn how to do things right and so manufacturing alcohol is tricky. Um, and, you know, we, we didn't know how to proof it to, to start. You know, you, you make it and then you add water to get it to a certain proof. Well, that's a super complicated 
um, endeavor. And I mean, the, my favorite story, I, I, I hesitate to even tell this, but we had our first order for gin uh, a week before Christmas in December of 2013. And my husband had been up all night making it, literally all night. He was sleeping in a lawn chair with a U-Haul moving blanket on the distillery floor in front of the still. And it was just, I mean, it was, you know, the heavy lifting doesn't even begin to describe it. But we had that, the, the order was supposed to go out on a Tuesday morning in December, right before Christmas. And the driver showed up to pick it up at our door the truck arrived and we didn't have it bottled yet right and and so we all kind of like mike's dad swung into action and took the driver out for lunch you know we were like give us a couple hours yeah and in that first order the driver ended up helping us bottle it he was so good natured i mean and those are the kind of things where you just like oh my god um all hands on deck and you you make it happen but I mean, you just, you don't know until you start running the equipment and driving the still, you don't know what's gonna happen. You can read it in a textbook, you can apprentice with somebody, but until you start doing it yourself, um, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna know all of the pitfalls and things that are gonna come up. Right, and that's a great little story. And I tell you, it's just so, uncommon to hear of a startup delivering their first product on time. Sherry, in your experience in manufacturing product from scratch and buying the equipment, setting up the facility, all of that, do you have any one top key piece of advice on how to approach that? You know, I think for us, it was, you might you might have that goal of where do you want to be in five years, but you really got to work backwards from there. And, and you really have to, I mean, as simple as how many hours a day do you plan to run the still? That was a key question for us because the example I'll give is we initially were going to buy German stills. Well, they're sized to run two shifts. And that means you have people working 18 hours a day. I mean, the specificity of how your equipment runs, don't assume anything. You, you need to really go deep and ask every question. You can't assume that, uh, that the manufacturer of the equipment you're using necessarily thinks the way, the same way about it that you will. Yeah, that is an awesome piece of advice. Really impactful. Don't assume anything. And that can apply to all sorts of functions of a startup. Let's talk about selling the product to retailers. Early on, how did you approach them? How did you learn to do that? Tell us the stories uh, or a story of those first approaches. Well, in, in the liquor business, your, your biggest partner is your distributor because you have to sell to a wholesaler or a distributor who then sells to the retailer. So for us, it was finding the right distributor. And we started in Minnesota, and we approached um, our distributors, Johnson Brothers. And and for them, I think their eyes lit up when we sat down and we said, we're, we're going to move back home and start this business on a farm. But their very first question, they didn't ask, you know, do you know how to make spirits? <laughs> their first question was, what do your bottles look like? 
And so that told us that, you know, because consumers make that decision, I don't know, what is it, is it 90% of decisions are made, you know, standing in front of the shelf in the store. So you're, you have to stand out and your product has to captivate people and it has to capture people's imagination and it has to be, it has to look beautiful and different. That's the most important thing for um, a bottle of spirits on the shelf. And our distributor knew that. So, you know, we went in, thankfully, with um, renderings of what our products were going to look like. We hired a, a just a killer graphic designer who was able to bring our, our brand to life. And um, that, I think, was, was super important. We, we spent a year working on our brand and our packaging. Before we had the building built, we had done a lot of work basically knowing who we were and what our story was to build this brand that could, could be executed in something like a bottle. Yeah, and were you talking to Johnson Distribution before you built the facility and were they sort of a sort of a partner in in helping you think through that branding? We were talking them talking to our distributor well well in advance of of building the building. Um but we weren't really, we were basically just talking to, my husband and I were talking to each other about our brand. We didn't work with our distributor really in um, conceiving the brand and executing the packaging. Um, that was really entirely based on who we are as individuals and our heritage. Did you work with the distributor in identifying some key retailers that could influence your distribution growth? Yes, absolutely. Our distributor helped us choose the the places in the Twin Cities. Obviously, that's our biggest market. Um, they helped identify the bars and the liquor stores that would be our biggest ambassadors and cheerleaders. And how did you work with the distributor to educate their team to help sell the product? Well, we provided... Um, good, well-thought-out point-of-sale materials and collateral to support the story and the bottles. We got in front of the sales team and tasted our product with the sales team and talked about who we were. We used our website images of the farm, and we brought in the grain. We brought in the dirt. Um, we let them touch it and feel it and um, really driving home that idea of, of estate-grown and what made us different. We had some great imagery of, of Halleck and um, where it is in respect to Canada and, and the Twin Cities that, that helped support the story. Um, and we, got, we did tastings um, at liquor stores. Um, we did a lot of talking with the liquor store owners and, and all of that happened before we really went to the consumer directly. How did you go about setting the price for the product and would you do it differently if you could look back and change the price? Yes, yes we would do it differently. Um, we, we thought we did a pretty comprehensive pricing survey. We looked at um, brands that we admired and that were similar, so comparables, um, and we looked at them around the country and looked at where they were on the shelf 
in Minnesota. And we did that by spirit. I think if we were to do it again, we would line price, which means everything would be priced the same. Um, the simplicity factor is huge and can't be overstated. The simpler you can make things for your liquor store owners and your sales reps and your the people who buy the spirits, the simpler you can make it for them, the better. Creating awareness and demand is difficult for small companies that have very small marketing budgets if they have any dollars to spend on marketing at all. How did you or how are you creating awareness and demand for your product? What are the top things that are you doing for the most impact? Well, I would say good design. I mean, it it's sort of, it's going further upstream than, you know, an ad or a billboard or a website. But it starts with good design because the example I like to use is people say, how did you get into New York? You know, and we're in La Bernadette in New York. How did you get into Blue Hill and these great restaurants? Good design got us into those places because our New York distributor found us on a design blog. And so the creative community has really, I mean, they're so, they're excited and they love to share good design. And so if you start with something like that, that will really help drive awareness and generate awareness of your brand because if your products look fabulous on social media people are gonna you know if you can stop traffic with the way your stuff looks I think that makes up for your short um, marketing budget sure how did you search for and identify your brand graphic designer we were lucky enough, it was a friend of a friend um, that I, I knew. She was the only individual I knew that designed packaging versus graphic design of, of printed pieces. Um, and we knew it was a match made in heaven because when, when we introduced her to our concept of this heritage distillery based on Scandinavian design, she said, where have you been all my life? Um, so that affinity was, was we are really lucky. Let's get personal. So Sherry, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business but never start one. It's all show and no go. And starting a business is highly unusual. You talked about what motivated you to start a business, but tell me more about it. Do you think it was your destiny to start a business are you and your husband Michael creators at heart yeah I think we are and you know in different ways uh, he's more analytical and I'm probably more emotive and but our our family it's in our it's in our bones our my parents were small business owners his parents were and are still farmers um, and being able to, to make something tangible was, was, I think, always pulling at us, that feeling of, you know, being in charge of your, your day, being in charge of your destiny. What have been your biggest joys or what have you been most proud of along your entrepreneurial journey? Um, you know, the way our stuff tastes, frankly, is probably our biggest joy because we really are proud of the fact that we make spirits that are delicious. And I remember we we were in New York City last October and we went to a, 
a Michelin-starred restaurant, um, a farm-to-table place that serves our rum. And we sat down, and they brought us an old-fashioned. And it felt like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is so amazing. Here we are, these two farm kids from Halleck in the, in the Big Apple, you know. Um, so I guess I think part of it is, is seeing that it, it actually worked, you know, it's like we didn't have, we didn't have a background in what we're doing, but we weren't afraid of taking a huge risk. Um, and it's, you know, we're still, you know, the verdict's still out. We're only three, three years young, but um, it's working. It's, it's tremendous. Yeah, great. What has been your biggest frustration? Oh, there are daily frustrations. Um, I think the biggest frustration is realizing just how hard it is to sell 10,000 cases of alcohol. <laughs> it's like the selling is sort of like selling reminds me of college homework where there's always more you can do. There's always something more you can read. And so you you can't ever ever let it go. You have to always be thinking of selling. And um, I don't think I, we're salespeople at heart. So, um, but you, you can't shortchange it. You've always got to be selling. Sherry, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones that are at the pinnacle of their success have experienced self-doubt as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it? I would say a daily dose of self-doubt, um, and part of that is coming from wanting everything to be perfect, and so dealing with it is is realizing there's no such thing as perfection. Um, in, in a way, I think self-doubt can be a great driver, though, to always try to make it better. Um, so it, it can be a good thing if you can turn it into uh don't don't let it debilitate you, but turn it into the drive to do better. Sherry, you obviously were a partner in your own PR firm, but in terms of this business, do you think starting Far North Spirits has changed you as a person? Uh, no, I don't think it has changed me as a person. Um, I think that it's it's stretched. I, it's it's you know every single solitary talent and skill you bring to bear when you start your own business and every everything you've ever done. So it certainly stretched me, but I don't think it's changed me. Mm -hmm. What have you learned most about yourself since starting this business? Huh, that I'm, I'm not really good at having fun. That's <laughs> funny. At, at setting things up and, and, and then, you know, plan the party and let people uh, do the party and then scurry away into the corner. Yeah. And, and who has been most influential to you in your life, either professionally or personally? Um, well, this is an interesting question. I was, I was kind of trying to decide if it was my husband or Cher, but Cher. I, think, <laughs> I think it might be, um, what might be most influential to me in my life is, is home and place. Um, Halleck for us is, is really, it's, it's the idea of simplicity and the idea of, of living, um, meaningfully. And that has been probably the biggest influencer. And I can't let this go. How has Cher influenced you? <laughs> 
oh, everything's sparkly and beautiful and fantastic. I I think I grew up in the 70s, you know, and I, I Got You Babe was my first album. And so, you know, I think I'm a Gen Xer who's maybe looking for that um, that 70s vibe again. Yeah, my first album I purchased at Woolworths and it was Barry Manilow. <laughs> Which one? It was it was the one with Mandy. Oh, I love it. And I still have it. Do you really? Yeah, I still have it. It's sitting about 10 feet away from me. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. And so I secretly play it once in a while. Yeah, no, it's all good. Finally, Sherry, did I miss any questions that you feel you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? Well, I think the most important thing, you know, any any advice I'd give to an entrepreneur is to know who you are and do your thing. Because you are going to get intimidated and you're going to be full of self self-doubt on certain days, but you can't chase trends. You've got to know who you are and do your thing. And if you do that, that will that will help you in the long run. Sherry, you've been a great guest offering great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success for your entrepreneurial courage and sharing your experiences with us today. Thank you so much, John. I really enjoyed talking with you. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business. 